0: Well, welcome to The Discomfort Practice. It was recently my pleasure to meet my next guest when we were panelists for an online beauty event by the Conscious Beauty Union, whose mission is to support beauty professionals in developing a sustainable practice. And I sort of clocked her and thought, oh my gosh, I would would die happy if this person were on my podcast. (laughs) So it's my pleasure to introduce Anya Rose Campbell. She is a producer, community organizer, facilitator, Communication strategist and fashion model who co founded the Model Activist Community in 2016. It's known as the Model Mafia, which is a damn good name. I love it. It's a powerful community of hundreds of models who work together to create a more equitable, just, and sustainable fashion industry and world. Anya is half Chinese, half Scottish Irish English, and was raised in England. She is based in New York City, but has spent most of the last year in the UK due to COVID to be closer to her family. Lots of changes in the world today. So today, the Model Mafia is a self-organized community of nearly 400 fashion models who use their collective influence and substantial social media followings as a force for good to promote activism inside the fashion industry and drive change, while providing a network of friendship and support to one another, which... If you think about modeling, it's all about competition and being a rock star in your own right so that there's friendship and collaboration is a really beautiful part of the movement. So, whether renting a bus and traveling together to Washington, D.C. to participate in the People's March for Climate Change or spearheading the Me Too movement in fashion and raising awareness of the terrible harassment faced by many within the industry, the Model Mafia demonstrates the powerful potential of female communities and the achievements that can happen when women unite to support one another. Anya started modeling at the age of 20, having chosen to finish her education, rather than jump into modeling when she was first scouted by Storm Models at the age of 15. And if you know anything about modeling, Storm Models represents people like Kate Moss. In 2011, she was in LA to model the winning design for the Red Carpet Green Dress Competition, which is all about wearing sustainably made clothes at the Oscars and other red carpet events. The competition was started by Susie Amos Cameron with her husband, film director James Cameron, you might know him. And the whole experience just got Anya thinking about the negative impact the fashion industry has on our planet and people who make clothing, often in horrible conditions, paid a wage that keeps them in poverty. So this led her to a conscious decision to use her career and influence to promote sustainable and ethical fashion and collaborate with conscious brands to align our image with our beliefs as much as possible. So it's a theme that comes up over and over in this podcast about alignment of your personal with your professional and using the discomfort of moments like that, of of realizing the clothes that you wear actually often cause a terrible cost to the planet and to other people to then start something and get other people involved. So welcome, Anya. It's a delight to have you here.
1: Hi Betsy, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. I feel so flattered (laughs) (laughs) and I really am so happy to be here. Um, It was great meeting you at the Conscious Beauty Union panel and hearing you speak and your thoughts and I was so pleased when you asked me to be here so thank you.
0: Oh, it was like I was literally, we were on this panel and I was trying to quietly type while on Zoom being like, Anya, will you be on my podcast? As we were both on this panel. <laughs> so I'm so glad you were like, yes, and here's my email address. I was just like, oh, but starstruck actually. So Anya is obviously stunning. You can't see this, but she's a model. So you could have guessed. Um, but she is someone I'm really looking forward to talking to about how discomfort and beauty can sit side by side and what impact that can have on the world. Sort of using your assets. You know, it might be that you have a career in strategy or a career in being an engineer, but Anya has this career built on being stunning and also has brought her education and her intelligence and her passion to that field that she's in. So let's talk about this. You know, first question I always ask is what is an uncomfortable moment that's changed your life, that's shaped who you are and how you are in the world?
1: Mm, well, I don't really have one moment, um, but a collection of moments that I would love to talk about here. And that is actually my modeling experience. Um, I think that a lot of people think that modeling is really glamorous and quite easy, but actually it's very challenging. And, you know, you enter the industry very young, normally in your uh, late teens, um, and you sort of get thrown into this world of adults and you have to then uh, go around to different castings and you face a lot of rejection and a lot of scrutiny and you haven't always developed the uh, ability to cope with it all, quite honestly. Um, And then there are other aspects of the job, which is that it's a very lonely job. You are mostly by yourself because, you know, you're not working every day. You do have to go to castings. Um, and you, you are waiting to be told what to do, whether you will get a job, whether you will go to castings, which you normally get the night before. Mm. Um, and sometimes you don't have any castings or sometimes you're not working for a while and it's, it's quite demoralizing. Um, and you just also. Find it's difficult to make friends. Maybe your your people around you are competition, or you may find that you have friends and then they leave and they go to another country. Um, And it's just a job where you don't have much control. So you also go to these places. You do your best. You've maybe you've bought some really nice clothes. You've you've been exercising. You've been really careful to keep your skin clear and all of these things, and you still get rejected from someone who you're like but I feel like we should be working together or um, you just don't get paid for a long time sometimes you don't get paid for six months or longer after you've done the job and that's very typical mm-hmm. Um, and it's just it is a difficult after a while to be not having a strong sense of stability and when you try to um, exercise some way to express yourself your agency might say well you know it's not really about what you say that matters it's about what you look like and the only thing you can really control actually is your weight to be honest with you
0: Mm. so
1: it can you know after a while of doing it when because your career is sort of you know you you go through it and then you get to your mid-20s and you kind of have an identity crisis about what am i going to do next but you haven't actually probably done anything but modeling for quite a long time Um, and it's a really stressful thing that lots of models go through Um, and so for me that whole experience of feeling disempowered of seeing my friends feel that way um, you know of having like actually really high highs when you're on a job and then like really low lows when you're not working or you're you're going to castings and you're not booking anything because it's very typical that you can like work really well for months and then not work for months or not work as much um, and be wasting for payments that you haven't had you know, from jobs that you did a long time ago. So, um, yeah, that whole experience for me was very uncomfortable and it went on for, for years. But you know that you're in a privileged position, you know that you're lucky and, and you want to keep doing the job. So it's not that you just completely walk away from it. And it's also that you that's what you know how to do. Right. So I I felt that I needed to find a way to create stability for myself and fathers and to think about what we can do outside of modeling. Um, and so I started Communities essentially. That was my way of moving through this, and I started a community called Beyond the Runway, and um, it was basically for models to learn from other models who had transitioned out of modeling how they did that, and also to learn that actually transitioning out takes many years. Like I still model and I do other work too, um, but making that first initial step is actually a really important thing to do, and being in a space where people can communicate that with each other. No one ever talks about life outside modeling or after modeling. Um, and there was no space for us to talk about it. There was no support for us. So that, um, that was something that I did from these uncomfortable experiences of the instability of my work. And then, you know, actually what happened after that was that the Model Mafia came to be because I hosted an event with Cameron Russell who is a really brilliant model and activist and it was really well attended and we um, found that there was a space that people were really interested in about activism and actually how you use your platform in a way that allows you to speak about things that you really care about and actually gives models more depth because they're also craving for that to show more of who they are so this was in 2016 a while ago Um, when social media and models speaking up was a more of a new thing. And Cameron and I remained friends. Um, And then um, at the end of 2016, after the election of Donald Trump, (laughs) we were lamenting.
0: (laughs) That was quite a moment that changed a lot of people. Yes. It was an
1: uncomfortable moment for many years. We were lamenting that and um, he started taking away or talking about things that he was going to do. And we understood that he was going to be infringing on lots of rights. And um, we started thinking about, well, maybe we could organize models to... Um, learn about how they can be activists to push back on on this and also just to create an activist community because so many people seem to be interested in it and so um yeah actually now i i sort of live in some ways more in discomfort because i'm um really thinking about all these different issues which are going on in the world and how we can be powerful in uh tackling them um But I'm also in the position of feeling a lot of comfort because we have such a beautiful and amazing community and we're all supporting each other.
0: Oh, that's beautiful, that juxtaposition of being uncomfortable because you now see things very differently. But that comfort of community or or whatever it is, not comfort, comforting. It's, yeah, it's a nurturing place to be, isn't it? Mm. And I also, so many, so many thoughts came up as you were talking because I, I binge watch um, Giselle Bündchen interviews because I absolutely love her. Um, and she was talking about that sort of seemingly privileged position you're in of people like, oh, you lead a charmed life as a model. How how could you possibly have mental health issues or or things to be activist about? so And also probably the pressure to just, just do your job. You're just meant to be pretty and wear things and look a certain way, not to have thoughts, not to have a brand that's activist. So... What pushback? I mean, you you kind of alluded to agencies being like, just just do your job, just, you know, control your weight or whatever. But how did you find, say, modeling agencies and those with more power in the modeling world than the models themselves? How did they react to activism from models? Was it a positive? Did they get it? Did they oppose it?
1: Um because of the power dynamic, where you understand that your agent is responsible for finding new work, and you don't want to upset them, and there are quite strict industry ideals or standards or just what a model should be, which is also in many ways like subservient and silence, mm-hmm. in, You know, a handful of years ago when this was beginning. Um models were nervous about speaking out, and also because lots of models, as I said, are are young, young when they enter the industry and they want to they want to do well. So definitely, you know, when we had that event in 2016, people wanted to learn from Cameron how how can they do that? How can they tread that line? <laughs> but mm. um now, these days, actually agencies are more open to you doing that and sharing who you are of course though they're they don't want you to be rallying railing against a a client for example because that's their income and so you have to kind of make a choice to be honest with you about what what's more important and there there's a reality and it's not lost on any of us that we rely also on these clients for work Um, And some people are in positions where they're able to say, okay, well, I don't want to work for that client and that's my decision because I'm able to do that. But there are others who aren't able to do that.
0: Mm.
1: So I think for models speaking, they have to sometimes make a personal decision, but um, also when it comes to us doing something together, you know, if a hundred models are saying, hey brand, you shouldn't be doing this, it's much more difficult to single out one person for doing something wrong. And that's really the beauty of our community is that we try to do things as a collective. Um, and it just takes on the risk in a completely different way than if one person was doing it by themselves.
0: Mm, That's a really good angle to bring up and, and a, a really good one for people to remember that there is this power of the collective, but also safety in the collective and, you know, sort of if your competitors aren't keeping the same high standard and and obviously as models, everybody's a potential competitor, which must make friendships a little bit difficult sometimes. But yeah, if everybody's sort of doing it together, then like you said, no one can be singled out and not hired because they're speaking out or sort of sidelined. And And it is interesting what you talk about the power dynamic of very young girls and young men who just want to do well and they're working for big brands or agents who have been in the, you know, the sector, the industry for a long time, that power dynamic could be really silencing. So it's amazing what, you know, what you've done with the Model Mafia. And I'm interested to hear sort of what are some of the brilliant moments that you've had? I mean, talk about going to D.C. together or the meetings that you have or just the, the contacts that you have and how you keep in touch with this beautiful community of people.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things that we've done, which have been really powerful. One of them, which you talked about, which was bringing the Me Too movement to the fashion industry. So um, at that time, a number of models shared anonymous stories of abuse on their social media. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that it ended up with hundreds of millions of media impressions because it. It wasn't just within the social media landscape platforms that that people were picking up on this. They then got took to the media and um, the media reporting on it. And actually, when you have, like I said, hundreds of models sharing um, and from famous models to new models to models who are less well known, just everybody Um, across the field as well as also people who aren't models but within fashion sharing about these stories um it just created like a a lot of noise and it led to things like industry-wide changes the Condé Nast created their code of conduct um (laughs) this is going to sound ridiculous but you know there's many more changing rooms now on set often you just have to just change in front of everyone but now people are more conscious about creating changing rooms for models so which is really great because otherwise you just feel like you're just a thing for people to you know you're just a body um Mm. and it's just little things like that people are more i think um aware of sexual harassment that happens within fashion so that was a really um incredible and groundbreaking moment and then another thing that we did in 2019 we So that fashion models were turning out for the climate strike in September, and they turned out in 15 different cities around the world. I think, you know, we had like L.A., San Francisco, New York, London, Dublin, Athens, Berlin, Milan, Barcelona, um, Shanghai, I think Brisbane in Australia and others, and that was really, really incredible. Models were organizing themselves and organizing their friends and saying, hey, we as a faces of fashion, we demand a cleaner um, fashion industry. And mm-hmm. we think that climate change is something that needs to be addressed right now. So that was also a really, really powerful moment for us. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, I think that some of the the most important work It's actually some of the least visible work, which is the work of building relationships um, within the group with creating fertile soil and building trust so that people feel that they can lead or take action um, and they feel supported. Um, And one of the ways that that has actually manifested itself most beautifully during the last um, year in the pandemic is that we created the Model Mafia COVID Relief Fund, which is powered by our members. So if um so we, we put out a call and we ask, please donate if you can, and then those who can donate do, and then those who are really in need of help, they apply to the fund and they're able to receive some assistance. Um, and many mm-hmm. of them are in, are in really precarious situations, they they may have um um immigration statuses which don't allow them to leave one country or enter into another. And they also can't rely on their family for help. So that's just been really Mm -hmm. the most beautiful thing to see how we are acting to support each other and really create the world that we want to see.
0: Yeah. And I guess that really also raises the point that there probably is way less work for models because there are fewer shoots probably, you know, we're, We're in a strange time when everything has to be socially distanced or lots of things have been put on hold because people can't get together and do things. So is that part of it? A lot of modeling work has dried up. So people need extra support because they're not able to work as much. Yes. Yes. That's really powerful. And I guess that kind of leads quite beautifully into a question I wanted to ask about you know, what are some uncomfortable facts about fashion and modeling that most people probably don't know about? Because you gave us a sort of peek behind the scenes when you talked about more changing rooms, because you don't think about the fact that a model just has to like take off the clothes, put on the next one, no changing room or in a hurry to like get back on a runway or something. But what are what are some of the things that light you up as an activist that, that need to be addressed or that others are addressing?
1: Um. Well, you know, one thing about fashion is that the majority of the people who work in it are, are women. And fashion actually employs, I think, something like one in seven people around the world, or at least it did um, before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of these women are not in positions of power. Um, and a lot of them, millions of them are garment workers. And like models, they enter into the industry really young. And they are also not in positions of power. they also have um, a lot of wage theft um, they're voiceless um, and they face sexual harassment like 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 models and others mm-hmm. in fashion and so I think that's something that people forget about is that the 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 women who are the backbone of the fashion industry and who are mostly in the global south um but something that's been quite beautiful is actually the, the relationships that we have been building with these women and trying to build solidarity across the supply chain, um, mm-hmm. trying to lift up their voices with sharing their stories on social media or learning about their experiences. Um, we've been particularly close with an, an NGO called BRAC, which is B-R-A-C, and they do a lot in Bangladesh, especially working mm-hmm. with garment workers. So you know, getting models to really learn about um, the experiences of the other women in the fashion industry has been really
0: powerful and beautiful, Um, Uh, and beautiful of connecting people to really the roots of what they do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I used to run a fair trade NGO and um, am kind of obsessed with fashion revolution. So it's beautiful to see that this has become so much more mainstream. It's not about just being fair trade or having a label, but it's actually yeah it's it's a growing awareness, a connection between all of the women among all of the women in the industry, whether they're garment workers in Bangladesh or models on a runway in Milan. It's amazing,
1: yeah, and you know I think that the fact that they you know consumption is up really isn't it? And the fashion industry really i think fuels consumption, and actually it's because these women are only earning like $1 a day. And Mm -hmm. that is, I think, a really an uncomfortable thing to to sit with. And so even just reflecting on that and being aware and thinking about, well, do do I need to buy all of this clothing? I, I don't think that people actually do 80% or more of textiles going to the dump each year. It's just in the US mm-hmm. and only about 15% is recycled. So why is it that we are able to buy so many clothes so cheaply? Why is it that CEOs of these large companies are able to amass so much wealth? Well, it's because someone's paying for it and it's it's the labor at the bottom who who aren't receiving a fair wage and it's the planet actually that... Um, is having so many resources taken from it in order to to perpetuate this this culture of consumption, and I think that that is something that we need to reflect more deeply on, because mm. I really think that this that fashion is just a symptom of the culture of the culture where we reward the amass of money. And um, we need to be thinking more about changing culture. And I actually think that there is an incredible opportunity for um, that to happen within fashion, because fashion is so much about creativity and influence, and we all have Mm -hmm. to wear clothes, right? So I think that if we can begin to change culture and allow fashion to be a leader in creating a sustainable future, that could be really, really, really powerful.
0: Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that people don't really think about too much. I mean, there are those of us who have thought about it a lot, but most people don't. And it's sort of through no fault of theirs because it's easy to not think about it, right? Like you order a dress on one of those online sites where it's super cheap. You only have to wear it once and it's kind of fun. It's It's fun. It's celebrated. It's kind of pushed at you. By all your social media channels by the beautiful people wearing them, but actually, when you realize that fashion is one of the most polluting industries on the planet and produces a huge amount of environmental impact and keeps people in poverty, it's like what you said when something is cheap, ask what it really costs, ask yourself who it costs. And once you start to become aware of that, there's kind of no going back, is there? Once you think about it, you can't unthink it.
1: Mm. Yes,
0: definitely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's been beautiful to sort of. I mean, I've long been obsessed with working with the fashion industry because they do have such influence and such creative minds. I was doing some work a couple of years back with the Caring Group, mm. who own like Gucci and, um, till a while ago, Stella McCartney and some really beautiful, you know, Balenciaga, um, and sort of was facilitating an in house workshop with a bunch of their designers and they were figuring out how to phase out fur and leather and, and be more environmentally sustainable because where high fashion leads, the high street follows. And it was just beautiful to see these people who were so motivated and so creative and passionate about it for a range of reasons. And it was it was just so beautiful to see them wanting to change the way that they did things, but also make it super beautiful and super appealing and just a different way of thinking because I am not a creative. So I just loved being around those people who are are doing things very differently in a super beautiful, super high end kind of way. Uh, just amazing to witness, but yeah. So what, what keeps you uncomfortable? It sounds like you're somebody who lives on the edge of your comfort zone anyway, and increasingly so as an activist, but you know, do you have a daily practice that's meditation or running or what's, what's your discomfort practice Anya?
1: Um, Yes. Well, <laughs> <my> <laughs> life definitely does keep me uncomfortable. Um, and I do meditate every day. I, I think that it's really helpful just to create some distance between how you're feeling and thoughts that suddenly come upon you. Um, so I, I meditate daily, but I also really make a concerted effort if I'm feeling perhaps a conversation hasn't gone well or I'm feeling personally upset or attacked over something, I will go and sit down and spend time really digging into that emotion, just sitting with it, finding what why I'm feeling upset at a deeper level, listening to maybe it's my inner child or mm. just allowing the emotion to be there and fully show itself and, that I find creates a huge resolution and a lot of relief in my psyche. Whereas, you know, if I don't address that, I think that I just get more annoyed throughout the day and maybe I might take it out on my partner or something or mm. just not be able to think clearly. So I have developed this ability to sit and become very close to feelings of deep discomfort. Um to kind of see them, see it fully, and um I find that to be very, very powerful, and definitely my meditation practice um, allows me to do that more um more successfully
0: i I'm with you all the way, and it used to scare me to death to be still. I was a very In my my yoga teaching career, I started out teaching rocket yoga, which is a super dynamic practice. And I taught in London. And let me tell you, rocket is kind of the last thing most Londoners need. What they need is to sit still and be quiet. Um, So I sort of found my way into yin yoga, which is a very still practice. But I'd stayed away from it for years out of like, oh, psh, that's boring. that's that's I don't need that. But it was actually because I was afraid of the silence and the stillness. So whenever I encourage somebody around me to meditate or to come to one of my classes and they go, oh, that's boring. I can't do that. I won't do that. I think, mm, what are they afraid of? <laughs> yeah. how How have you found that? I mean, we all start somewhere, don't we? None of us just naturally sits in silence usually. So were there some early days of getting more into a meditation practice? And sort of what was your path to learning to sit with discomfort? Such a beautiful way to put it.
1: Well, Betsy, this is, I think, going to be interesting for you. I used to be um, a very religious Christian, not in the sense of like an evangelical Mm -hmm. one. But in the UK, we have what's known as the Church of England. And people there are like, you know, they're very, happy go lucky they like to sing a lot in church and they're not so kind of hardline evangelical like the ones in america but i was you know
0: like the ones i grew up with (laughs) yeah i like the ones i grew up with yes that's how i grew
1: up i was all about jesus you know Mm -hmm. i i really had like a loving relationship with jesus but I was very open-minded christian i was like it doesn't matter if you're buddhist or this or that as long as you have spiritual practice um and but I had an experience where I had kind of the foundations of my belief really shattered. Um, and I was left with a massive void and emptiness. I was in my mid sort of twenties, mid to late twenties. And, um, I basically had like an existential crisis, (laughs) but it was really, it was important and life changing. And, um, As I started to recover from that, a friend of mine introduced me to um, actually Siddhartha, the book, and then also um, The Power of Now. And through those books, I sort of began to understand what life could look like without um, a strong Christian belief. Mm. And... um, sort of was introduced to meditation and actually mindfulness really, just being really present, um, looking at flowers or or washing my hands. And I found that there was so much joy in that and it was quiet joy, you know, and I could be really interested in those things. Um, And that's how it kind of started. I, I had to, I mean, I had to sit with silence and discomfort because all of a sudden the voice or the dialogue that I had with God all the time was gone and vanished. And um, and so mindfulness actually began to fill that.
0: Wow. I, I, I did not know this was going to come up, but I can relate to it in all of the ways because I had similar things, similar time in life of just looking back and realizing that I, I just didn't believe any of the things that I had been raised with as an evangelical Christian who was going to be um, revealing this. Um, a missionary. From the age of ten to twenty one. I I believed that I was called to be a missionary. So, you know, I've kind of turned that evangelical streak into other things as an activist, but wow. So it just it just kind of came crumbling down for you, huh?
1: Well, I I it did. It came it it shattered. It completely shattered. I I was going through a really difficult time in my life. I thought I had you know, found the person I was going to marry I um, which was really naive, but when you're young and you're infatuated in the early stages of a relationship, that can happen. and um, he broke up with me, and at the same time, I was having um, visa issues and also was like struggling. it was just one of my one of the lulls in my work, and um mm. it was the dead of winter as well in New York, snowstorm. <laughs> oh
0: that's a grim time (laughs) it
1: was just so grim yeah I just something about him and what I felt that he represented um in my psyche was like for was like completion essentially and then when that that didn't happen when he shattered that I it disturbed me so much that I could no longer believe in God It, it was very strange but um that's what happened.
0: Wow. Yeah. That domino effect when you sort of are launched into existential crisis. Totally, totally. But everybody can probably relate to that. You know, we've all had those moments when you're just like, I am at rock bottom, but nope, there's always a bit lower you can go. (laughs) And that's, you know, when you think you can't get out of bed anymore is sometimes when the magic happens, Mm -hmm. when those moments you look back on and think that moment made me that moment is the reason I'm here right now, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, but you never appreciate those till they're in the rearview mirror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, interesting. Yeah, because I know you mentioned you might ask me a bit about my family background because I mentioned it on the the panel we were on because yeah, similar, very devout, very very devout Christian, believed it all up to the eyeballs, sent myself to Bible college. Oh boy. Again, things I'm admitting on the internet. Most people <laughs> who are friends with me now or who know me now are sort of, you know, kind of lefty politically educated and they think that I'm like them because they don't know my background at all. So yeah, interesting. And I guess that leads me to a question, which you can answer or not, but what does your, what does your family think of that? What does your family make of, you know, the fact that you have stepped away from that, that background, that faith, and and you're obviously in a very happy place now. So sort of how to how do you navigate that? Because I know you're close to your family.
1: Well, in this instance, I'm actually unlike you, Betsy, because mm-hmm. my family are not religious at oh, all,
0: and so, oh, so you were the lone one, huh?
1: <laughs> yes, my my grandmother on my mum's side. This is interesting. She had she was a nun. She was in the convent for 13 years, and then she left the convent and had a family. Um, wow. quite late in life but she she did continue to have um, a religious practice and I was very very close to her as a child so she I think you know just introduced me to this idea of, of God and religion and um, I, it just seemed natural she was so loving she herself was mm. so loving and she expressed that. God was very loving and Jesus was very loving, not in like a hard line way at all. Um, And I think that was just really beautiful to me. And um, I really connected to it. Also, my dad wasn't around very much when I was younger. So I think at some level, there was this feeling that there was God the father there Mm -hmm. um, and he was loving. So that was also something that I think probably attracted me to it. And then she passed away when I was quite, quite young. And so it was also a, a strong connection to her, but the rest of my family were not religious. Um, My cousins who I'm very close to w- would definitely make fun of me a lot, and <laughs> my mum was wow. not into it. So it, you know, it's it was unusual, but I think that yeah. was why.
0: Yeah. Oh wow. Okay, that is very different because my family are still very, completely, very religious, but. Uh, okay, interesting. Very interesting. And they've probably been like, phew, she came out of that. I don't know. <laughs> it's a um, controversial one because religion gives many people I know and love a real sense of purpose and community and they're, you know, they're inclusive and loving. And then there are other elements where it makes them more mm, limited in their ability to accept others or their beliefs um, keep them from being able to accept things that maybe people like me. I I am very different from my religious upbringing in lots of ways. Uh, so yeah, yeah, interesting. Didn't expect to meander into that, Anya. <laughs> ah. Yeah,
1: and don't get me wrong. I I loved going to church and the people there were wonderful. I just can no longer believe in the things they believe. in. Yeah,
0: very succinctly put. Yeah. Same. I I was um, it was when I was in a very very liberal church of well the episcopal church in scotland which is obviously church of england but in scotland um and it was the church that after the revolutionary war with the u.s sent bishops to ordain bishops to the u.s episcopal church because england was like um no we just fought a war we're not sending you bishops bye um but it was they've championed um gay marriage and gay clergy and female clergy and it was the most inclusive beautiful christian community i've ever been part of but one day i was in church and i was super involved i was an acolyte i was one of those people who like carried the candle during the services and stuff but i just had this feeling of rage and i was like it's not this church it's something about what it means to me and what it brings up for me and it was then that i really realized it was time for me to break up with religion it was something that was so tied to some trauma, well, a lot of trauma, and baggage and oppression. It was, it was just, I just had to throw myself out of it, basically, and just abruptly quit. So, yeah, when you're in the most liberal church you've ever been in and you're angry, there's, there's something going on there. Thank goodness for therapy. But I do miss that community. I'm with you. I miss singing with others. I miss i miss praying. And meditation and my mindfulness practice has brought a lot of that back, but I there's not the same community, is there? Because a lot of these practices are very individual, and yeah, you're connecting energetically to others, and you're aware that others are doing this, but it's not quite the same as just standing in a church hall singing hymns with other people.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, and and that's something which is really powerful. But it's something which I have carried with me, and I just I try to create it, you know, with the model mafia with um with friends just. I'm always I'm actually very driven to create community and um create around me this sense of belonging within mm. a group. So I can see how that which I've kind of lost from church I've sort of um created for myself in other places and I think it's just so important, so 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 important to know where you belong. Mm. It's it's just one of the most important things for the stability of the mind and I think that for people who maybe are in uncomfortable situations or if you know whether that's in church or they have um, a family whose views they don't fully agree with um, it's difficult to say I don't I don't want to be a part of this anymore or to speak up because then you risk being um, abandoned if you like Um, and I think that what you did was very brave. Um, and it does take courage sometimes to break away from things that you don't believe in and, but you, you lose a lot of connection Mm. and you have to start Mm. again.
0: I love what you're saying about creating community and how that's driven you to create community. And I totally agree because, when you don't know that there's something on the other side for you, it is very difficult to stand up to sexual harassment or to leave your identity. You know, if you've been a religious person or your family will reject you if you come out as gay or, you know, lots of difficult things that people have to deal with quite regularly. And if you don't know that you're going to be held on the other side, that you have a community to step into, that leads to you know despair or even suicidal tendencies, we've seen a lot of that with isolation throughout this pandemic, people who've been living on their own and are really experiencing mental health difficulties because they feel alone. And we're not solo beings. We're meant to be in community, aren't we? That's how we, how we evolved, how we're meant to function. So it's beautiful that you've made it your mission to create community for people who otherwise can be quite isolated and also you know, vulnerable young and they don't know anything else outside of modeling. So I guess that kind of brings me to what do you what do you want to achieve? What do you want the model mafia to achieve, but also what do you want to achieve in your life with your impact, with your passions?
1: Um either the model mafia, you know, we have like a, a loose um Statement and goal, which is just to create a more sustainable, just, and equitable fashion industry and world. And I don't really have any goals from it, goals for it. Sorry, other than um, for the members to feel fulfilled and safe, and from there for them to be able to do the things which they feel are important. What I love about this group and about the way that we have created it and um, think about it is that it's it's led by what the members want and it should be fluid and agile and if tomorrow nobody wants to be a part of it anymore then that's completely okay and um, it's very democratic it's you know we operate on a google group mm. so you can just share what it is that you're doing with the group and whoever is interested will come back Um, and say, hey, I want to do something too. Um, So it's really like led by them and not really what I want from it. I just want to be able to help maybe guide people and guide it in the right direction towards um, justice and equity and sustainability. Um, But I feel like everyone in the group wants that Mm -hmm. anyway. So that's Mm -hmm. good. And then for for myself, I guess, um, you know, I think that we're always changing and, and I I don't know that I have one goal except for just to live life as honestly and um, as authentically and, and as fully as I can. Um, I think I would really feel bad to look back on life and say like, I didn't do things that I think would make me happy i didn't try things because i was fearful um but with that i hope that the work that i do has a lasting effect i hope that it can really help others i mean i have some plans for different projects i might work on this year um things like raising awareness for protecting the amazon um and I think that that's really important work. So I just hope that I continue to do things that, that make my heart sing and that actually help
0: others. Ah, oh, that's beautiful. Who are your Who are your discomfort heroes? And by discomfort, meaning, you know, who are the activists? Who are the people who are challenging themselves to be uncomfortable? Who are the people that you look to and think, oh, wow, they, they give me life, they inspire me?
1: My discomfort heroes are people like the indigenous uh, peoples of the Amazon who are on the front line protecting the rainforest which is keeping us all alive and which has so much biodiversity and knowledge and like history of the earth like it's an ancient area we, we don't have much of it left and it's so important to protect it you know those people were putting their lives on the line to protect their homes and we really need to protect the beings that live in the forest and the rest of the world, people who are the garment workers in Bangladesh who are again putting their lives on the line to try and get better conditions for all of the workers there, people like my mother who was a single mother who faced a lot of challenges but still managed to get through. I think that people who overcome adversity and Often people that we maybe don't know the names of. They are really my uh, heroes.
0: Yeah, the unseen ones, I suppose. Yeah, that's beautiful. This is something that I've thought about who I want to have on this podcast, and I keep coming back to, like, of course, there are my heroes. There are the Brené Browns and the Michelle Obamas, but it's the people doing work like you're doing, or the people who are on the front lines who are just doing what they do. And they're probably never going to be famous. They're just doing what they do because it's their their contribution to making their own lives better and contributing to the greater good. And we know so little about these people, but it's beautiful to understand they're there. We're all connected. We're all trying to do something good. So, harder question. What do you wish people would be uncomfortable about? What do people not think about that they should? or what should they think about more that might make them uncomfortable and then they go back to their comfort zone?
1: <laughs> um, you know, I think that people would benefit from spending time with their own discomfort. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that whether that's a mindfulness practice or just listening to other people who maybe don't, who they don't agree with, just making more of a conscious effort to be uncomfortable and to not turn away or to not break out into rage or be defensive or something like that if you know in in reaction to discomfort because I think that one of the major issues we're facing is polarization of opinions and people being divided from each other but if we can think why does this person or this idea make me feel uncomfortable why do I feel threatened by it can I see this person's point of view Um, do I feel like safe enough and strong enough in who I am and, and who is around me that even if this view is not the same as this other person's I still feel okay I don't feel so that my identity and my safety is threatened I think that everybody um, spending time to reflect in that way would be really powerful for society. And I think that it would help build a lot of trust because so much trust has been eroded. People don't trust their neighbours. People don't trust the government and corporations. And actually for good <laughs> yeah. reason, you yeah. know. <laughs> but um, if if imagine if politicians were thinking about that too. How can we build trust? Maybe we hold... Um, a local council meeting and invite everybody from the neighborhood to come along and discuss a policy on something like rent relief for small businesses and that affects people across all all political spectrums and and everyone could talk about what that would be like and how it would affect them and if and lots of people would benefit from it and then the people who contributed would feel that they were listened to you know what if everybody spent time thinking about that Um, I think that would be really powerful yeah
0: and it's also not you can't be palmed off as being overly idealistic there because I think if we've learned nothing else throughout this pandemic those of us who have access to technology now can see that it's actually quite easy to connect with people and to have discussions and to gather people who aren't necessarily like you and have these conversations because it's way harder to throw stones at people who aren't like you if you know those people you know, to be racist when you have friends of various colors and you have to have hard conversations, or when you actually have to listen to opposing views and just sit with the discomfort of that rather than reacting. I loved your point about how sitting with discomfort basically does help you to just be less reactive, to observe, to be able to take a breath before responding. Wouldn't the world be a much better place if everyone just naturally took a breath before responding? Can you imagine?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh, it's been so powerful in my own life because I have tended to be a bit of a whirlwind person in the past, always, you know, about getting stuff done and very in my masculine, you know, sort of let's do stuff. And as I've worked on stepping more into being feminine in, you know, my natural femininity, I've slowed down, I've gotten softer, but also my meditation practice has escalated and it's a daily thing now, like yours. And it's just made me so much less reactive and and so much kinder. I would say. I hope. Yeah. Oh, everybody meditate. That's the message here. (laughs) Ten minutes, five minutes, two minutes, whatever. It's all good enough. So what do you think there is to be hopeful about? Because obviously, as an activist, you and I are both naturally probably pragmatic optimists. So what is there to be hopeful about right now in
1: 2021? Well, the Biden administration, for one.
0: <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Some people might not agree with that, even listening yes. here. But hey, I, it's it's going to be different, and it's okay to disagree. I with just
1: I feel hopeful about that because he's put climate change back on the table. um He's brought in different people from different backgrounds into his cabinet, and that I think is really important. And and it sends a clear message. I mean, obviously, we get to see what happens, but I I do feel a sense of hope um, and optimism from that. um, I I think that also the culture is changing. I think culture is moving towards a more holistic view, thinking about humans as part of an ecosystem where we are all equal, all animals, all species equal within it, and that we need to think really about how our own impact affects Everyone and everything within the ecosystem i i feel I do feel like that I feel like there's being more space made for voices and media who don't normally um, get heard so and yeah, I just feel like we're we're moving towards a more of more regeneration, um, even with things like regenerative agriculture becoming more popular um and it's something which could be extremely yeah. powerful in the fashion industry um, so yeah, I just I, I feel that culture is moving in the right direction, slowly but surely, and that makes me very hopeful.
0: Yeah, that makes me very hopeful too because I like to think that that's the case, but to hear other people saying it makes me think, oh, maybe this is a thing, maybe this isn't me in my little sunshiny silo here thinking, I see people <laughs> waking up, I see people being with discomfort more, I see people wanting to change their lives and their careers and the way that they think to have a collectively positive impact. And I totally agree. It's also interesting to hear your perspective as a British person who's in the US, because I've always been the American in Britain for years, sort of having the other perspective of, you know, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about the UK. Not right now, but... Sorry to the UK listeners. It's going to get better. It might take a while, but it's going to get better. Look, the US just got by after four years of not good. So, yeah, I think there are plenty of reasons to be hopeful. It just is about what you focus on, right?
1: Mm. Yeah, and who you surround yourself yeah. with, and digging deeper, I think, within yourself as well.
0: Well, okay. Final question, and and this is unscripted. So, what are two things you would like to leave people with from this conversation?
1: I'd like to leave people with the knowledge that their own individual practice, whether it's tending to a garden or doing meditation, counting their gratitudes or just waving at their neighbor, whatever it is that they're doing to keep themselves connected to others to keep themselves connected to them, to their own selves and their own souls, if you like, their own happiness and joy, that um, that is really profound work that you, you don't know what the effect of it is, but the collective effect is moving us in the right direction. The other thing is remembering that we are all human. And there are ways that you can connect with even people that you, you don't think that you can. And just having some compassion towards yourself and towards them, um, will, will be really, really powerful. Um, we, we are in like a global community with each other, even if it feels like people who have different views to you or who are on the other side of the world are not, um, close to you. Um, and you can always do more to uh, find out more about those people as well and try to bridge, um, bridge, bridge d- divides. Being in community and taking collective action is really something that can be extremely powerful. And if you are interested in activism yourself, there are ways that you can just get together with colleagues or with friends and just do what I call low-key organizing. And that might just be choosing to listen to a podcast together and reflect on it or reading a book together and um, sharing opinions on it Um, or it might just be doing some community gardening together but um, it's just so joyful and powerful to do something to move us forward with other people and it's super easy to do especially with like whatsapp and um, all the things we have access to online so if you're interested in doing that i would really encourage you to find a way to low-key organize
0: mm, i like that low-key is such a good term but it's yeah it really is that simple just do something do anything remember that you are human remember that others are human remember that you can make a difference right
1: Mm. absolutely
0: Let me just end by thanking you so much for your time and your mindful, beautiful contribution. And I know that people will really enjoy this conversation. It will get them thinking and hopefully it will empower them to go out and make the world better nearby, far away in all of the ways that they might have influence. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your beauty, Anya.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Betsy. I really enjoyed this. Um, I can't wait for it to come out.
0: Thank you to my team who helped me produce this podcast, to my brilliant editor, Dimitar Svedkov, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, and to Luis Amaro for the original artwork. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help me reach new listeners by leaving me a five-star in written review on Apple Podcasts, following me on Spotify or anywhere else you love to listen to podcasts. You can also follow me on Instagram at thebetsyread. That's B-E-T-S-Y-R-E-E-D. If you're interested in bonus episodes and guided meditations I record regularly, head over to Patreon.com and become a supporter. For the price of a coffee each month, you get access to a community. So there's really only one thing left to say. Thank you for spending time with me. Stay uncomfortable.